So we're in a series titled Q&A, and what we did earlier in the spring is we asked people at LifePoint to submit questions on which they'd like to hear something they've been thinking about, something they've been wondering about, uh, on which they'd like to hear a, a sermon, uh, some teaching. And so uh, a number of those were submitted, and we're just kind of taking them one by one throughout this summer, and it's been an interesting interesting series to prepare for. Have you guys appreciated it at all? Good? Got some good sleep during it at least? All right, good. So the question today is, what does the Spirit of God intend to produce through my life? That was my distillation of a longer question. And the original question was this. John chapter 15 intrigues me a lot lately. One question I have is regarding fruit. It's referred to in John 15. Is fruit a good attitude? Or is fruit bringing people to Christ? Or is it both? Are works positive attitudes or actions taken that are good, or is it all one and the same? And a great question, or set of questions. Um, So the adapted question, again, is what does the Spirit of God intend to produce through my life? And let me just say right up front, front, fruit is all of those things. It's it's your character, it's your attitude, it's the, the lifestyle that flows out of your relationship with God, uh, it's the things that, that God calls you to do, because and you do them because he called you to do them. And uh, the passage that uh, this question was based on is John chapter 15, 1 through 8. It's our tradition at Life Point to stand as we read scripture and to read it aloud together. So would you stand with me and let's read this. Jesus is speaking, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is God's word. You may be seated. So it's my intent this morning to just kind of lead us through this passage and kind of teach through the passage and see what it has to say to us. And the first observation I want to share with you this morning is is simply this, that the parable of the vine, and that's what this is, it's a parable, which is a story that Jesus would tell to make a point. The parable of the vine is a Trinitarian parable. And you say, you're already making me write big words. Uh, It's spelled for you there. Trinitarian parable involving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinitarian simply means uh, a reference to the triune God, the three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all three persons of the Godhead are either mentioned or alluded to in this parable. And they they each play a role in what it is that Jesus is trying to say. So he identifies himself first that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the true vine, he says. I am 
the true vine, chapter 15, verse 1. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the true vine. Notice that, that Jesus didn't say, I'm the new vine. Uh, he said, I am the true vine. The national emblem of Israel in the time of Christ was a grape vine. Uh, in fact, on the, on the temple in those days, there was this massive giant golden vine that adorned the face of the temple in Jerusalem. Psalm 80 refers to Israel, the nation of Israel, as a vine. And speaking of the exodus out of Egypt, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground for it, it took deep root and filled the land, the land of Canaan, which is now the land of Israel. And even better examples found in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah chapter 52, where um, the Lord uh, is speaking, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a, vine, a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And speaking of Israel, so it says that they only yielded bad fruit, wild grapes, bad fruit. And then down in verse seven, the Lord reveals who and what he's talking about. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So Jesus isn't saying I am the new vine. He's saying, I'm the true vine. And the disciples most likely heard him saying, I am true Israel. In me, you're looking at the embodiment of, of everything that God always wanted his people to be. And Jesus had said earlier in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And it was uniquely because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, only person who's ever lived who did, that he was uniquely qualified to be our savior. That is, he was uniquely qualified to be the representative, the perfect representative of humanity, therefore our only substitute to die in our place and to be raised again to newness of life. But Jesus was saying something else here as well. He said, in essence, to those who are vitally connected with him, I am the source I am the life giver. I'm not the new life giver. I am the true life giver. I am the eternal one. I have always been the one who gives life to my people. And second, Jesus said that God the Father is the vine dresser. Now, the Greek word that's translated here, vine dresser, is actually best and most simply translated farmer. So Jesus saying, I'm the vine and my father, my heavenly father is the farmer. But, but I like the word vine dresser here because it, it, it focuses our attention on God's attentiveness to the vine, to the vineyard at large. God's artfulness, his expert care, his attentiveness to detail in tending and watering, cultivating the vineyard. So Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. So where does the Holy Spirit fit in? You say, I don't see any reference to the Holy Spirit here in this 
in this passage. And there is no direct reference to the Spirit, but, but here's what I know is true, is that God the Holy Spirit is the sap that brings life to the branches. He, he, he's the life that flows out of the person of Christ. Jesus said, I'm going to, I am going to send you, he said to his disciples before he went to the cross, I am going to send you another comforter, the Spirit of truth. And, and the Holy Spirit plays lots of different roles, but one of those is, in this context, that he is the, he is the sap. You know, nobody likes to be called a sap, so forgive me, Lord. But God the Holy Spirit is the sap that brings life to the branches. The, the Apostle Paul said, to the, when he was writing to the believers in the city of Corinth, the Spirit gives life. I was trying to read up a little bit on you know the whole scientific process by which sap you know is drawn up moisture is drawn up from the ground into the trunk of a tree or into the vine and and turns into sap and makes its way up and goes out the branches and and I I read a few articles and they were just like too overwhelming for me I thought there's no way I can kind of digest this but you know you think about how is it have you ever have any of you been to the 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 north coast of California, but in the redwoods. And you've seen those enormous, magnificent trees. And you think about how is it that that water is drawn up, up, you know, three, 400 feet. How does that happen? And, and as much as I was kind of dwarfed by these articles I was trying to read to understand that process, I was encouraged because Without exception, everyone, every one of the writers of the articles said that scientists have been trying to figure this out for a long, long time, how that actually happens and the whole, that whole, the whole physiology and the, the science of, that, of, of the, that hydraulic thing that happens in a plant. The Spirit gives life. And so Jesus says, uh, I am the true vine, my Father's the vine dresser. And then he says, you are the branches. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, when I was a kid, we used to sing this song in our youth group, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And we do this kind of goofy thing, you know, being a branch. So you're the branches, what happens in that branch is that, that 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 moisture, however it happens, you know, the way that God designed it, it's really miraculous that it comes up. And we we don't even think about it, right? Every day, you know, if they see a tree that's just growing, so that's beautiful. But it's beautiful because there's sap coming up out of the ground and up into those branches and out out the limbs, out to the tips. And out there is where the fruit is born and seeds are made. And new life occurs. Where the branches Jesus described three kinds of branches in this parable. So take notes on this because this is, this is cool, I think. Two of the branches, so three, say three. Three kinds of branches. Two, say two. Two of them, Jesus says, are in him. They're in Christ. John 15, verse two, every branch in me. That's important, Okay. If you have your own Bible, underline that. If you have somebody else's Bible, don't you dare. But every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he says he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. And the implication is that those branches are also in him. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That, uh, that 
picture of being in Christ is, a, is, is the, the branch having a vital connection with the vine. Two are in Christ, and then secondly, two bear no fruit. Two bear no fruit. Again, verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then in verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So this is a branch that's become disconnected from the vine. Some Bible scholars think that this is a reference to Satan, or not to Satan, I'm sorry, to Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, because the definite article is there, the the one who does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. And, And this, Jesus has given this teaching right before he went to the cross. So two are in Christ, two bear no fruit. Then thirdly, two do bear fruit. You're going, how, how is that possible? So here we go. Every branch in me, again, verse 15, verse 2, every branch in me, say in me. That's the key phrase there. That's, a, that's the all-important phrase. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And again, you might say, uh, um, that first description of a branch is not of a branch that bears fruit. Uh, Jesus clearly says that it doesn't. Well, that's true, but, but Jesus doesn't say that it never will. Okay, you got to be with me on this or you're going to lose, you're going to lose track. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Jesus doesn't say that that branch never will bear fruit. It hasn't borne fruit yet, but it will. Why? Well, two reasons. First, because it is in him. It's in Christ. Jesus says, that branch is in me. The branch is not presently bearing fruit, but it is vitally connected to the vine. The second reason that we can be confident that that first branch will eventually bear fruit is because of what the vine dresser does with that branch. Now, the ESV from which I teach, and the, the Bibles that are on the little tables out there are, are ESV Bibles, it says that the vine dresser takes that branch away, takes it away. And, and some other translations render that phrase cuts away, cuts off, removes. Living Bible paraphrase says lops it off. If you have an NIV Bible, which many of you do, your version says cuts off. And each of those is a legitimate rendering of the word that's used there, depending on the context. Context is everything in biblical interpretation. But each of those renderings of the word makes it sound like the vine dresser is coming out with his corona pruners, you know, gets out his loppers and performs an amputation on that first branch. It sounds punitive. It sounds like he's being rejected by God, taken away from the vine. In fact, it doesn't sound any different in effect from the description of the branch in verse 6 that's not abiding in Christ but has become disconnected and is only useful to be burned like firewood. But that is clearly not the picture that Jesus is painting here because this word that's translated takes away can also mean in context to lift up. And so you look at, you say, what makes the most sense here in the context with all the, all the evidence? 
And I think what makes most sense here is that that translation to lift up. So here, here's why. A skilled vine dresser is concerned for, for the health and the vitality of his vineyard, right? Um, if you go back, go down to the end of the passage, which we will in a moment, it says, Jesus said, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The father in context is the vine dresser. He gets glory from the, from the vitality of the vineyard. He gets glorified by our fruit bearing. So he's concerned for the health, the vitality of the vineyard and of each and every vine in the vineyard. So what does a vine dresser do? He, he carefully regularly, routinely, continuously examines each plant. And if a branch on a particular plant is looking unhealthy and not producing grapes, or even if it looks healthy but it's still not producing anything, he's going to examine the branch. And he's going to start at the tip of the branch and he's going to work his way back to the vine to see if there's a a disconnect somewhere in that branch. Is it broken? Has it become disconnected from the vine? Uh, I was at some friend's house the other night. Uh, They had this massive hydrangea shrub that was absolutely gorgeous, but not a flower on it. I thought, wow. And there's a great picture here. You could have a very healthy looking vine, but no fruit. And so the vine dresser wants to find out what's going on. So if there is no breakage in the branch, if there's, if there's no disconnect, if there's no fracture, then what he's going to do is he's going to take that branch and he's going to lift it up and tie it up in a place, in a position, where it's going to receive the nourishment and the sunlight that it needs to begin bearing fruit. The rest of verse 2 is, is all about fruitfulness and productivity. And so it only makes sense in context that takes away should mean to, to lift up and not to cut off. Cutting off a branch ends its fruitfulness. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, you probably have, of, of pruning shrubs, for example, in your yard. And you, you take a, a branch in the springtime and you're, you're pruning something and you toss it away and, and, and you come back the next day and the thing that's cut off has leaves on it. You go, how did that happen? It's like it's growing and it's disconnected, but you come back a day or two later and all of that is withered because it's disconnected from the vine. It's disconnected from its source of life. But repositioning a branch for future fruitfulness makes total sense. Not to mention that, that God has in the life of every disciple the total right to adjust our lives, to adjust our position in life, in ministry, in order to get us to produce more and better fruit than ever before. That's the work of a vine dresser. I can look back over my life and and know that God has repositioned me on several occasions. He he did the, the usual repositioning that happens early in life as you go through school and graduate from high school and you go off to college. That's a repositioning. You enter into a career, that's a repositioning. You might get married, that's a repositioning. In my case, along the way, God called, repositioned us out of the denomination that that we were in into another one that we totally didn't expect and weren't looking for. And, And that repositioned us to the state of California for several years. Uh, And then 
There was another repositioning. We ended up back here in Washington and here in Olympia and, and a church over on the west side. And in that position, I was repositioned from day one because I came to be the pastor of young adults and they said, oh, by the way, you're, for a while, you're gonna be pastor of all the adults. That never stopped in 17 years. That never changed. Oh, and by the way, um, we'd really like you to work with children because we don't have a children's guy right now. So now I'm pastor of all the adults repositioned into another role. And actually, I was a women's ministry director for a short time as well. <laughs> Uh, till Trisha Nichols' mom came and rescued me from that role. Then I was uh, repositioned after 17 years there um, to LifePoint. We planted LifePoint. After 30 years as an associate pastor, the past 10 being a lead pastor, that was a repositioning. And you look back, you know, over time, life, and you go, God has repositioned relationships. He's repositioned my career. He repositioned me geographically, culturally. If you're in the military, that happens to you every two to three years. You're being repositioned. And, and God uses that in your life. And you look back and you say, if you take the time to think about it, you'll, you'll say, man, God taught me this, 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 and this in a big way in that place that I needed for the next place. And, and God has been perfecting his work in my life. So you see, something you can be confident is true is that if you are in Christ, your heavenly father takes responsibility for fruit production in your life. I don't hear a big sigh of relief. That, that's, a, that's the point for the big sigh of relief. Because... Now you're doing it. If you're in Christ, your heavenly father takes responsibility for bringing fruit production about in and through your life. And that is great news. The apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he, that is God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, from the day you came to faith in Christ to the day you go home, he's working that in you. And, and the one who began it completes it, matures it, grows it. The writer of the book of Hebrews referred in uh, chapter 12, verse 2 to Jesus as the author and the perfecter of our faith. He takes responsibility for that. He's the one who calls us into relationship with himself and and he's the one who is willing and able and listen to me, utterly faithful to keep on perfecting you, to keep on making you more and more fruitful for the kingdom of God until the day he says, time out, time to come home. Amen? So notice what he does with the branch that is in fact bearing fruit at the current time, he prunes it. So if being repositioned can be awkward for us, it can be inconvenient and even painful, pruning involves actual cutting. Ouch! And it's therefore painful by definition. How many of you are growing tomato plants this summer? Some of you. Not very many. Wow. You guys should get into gardening. Come on. It's life. How many of you have an overgrown tomato plant at home? Anybody? It's just like going crazy. So one of the reason that happens is that 
tomatoes are notorious for growing little suckers. And in those little, that little place between the vertical branch and the side branch, you get these little suckers in here that grow out at an angle. And those things got to get pinched off, otherwise they grow into monsters. And, you know, and it's, it's bad. So you got to pinch it off. And so, you know, grapevines are, are a lot like tomato plants. And if left to themselves, they're just going to sprawl. They're just going to go everywhere and, and they'll become overgrown. And, and the unfortunate result of all of that is that he eventually stopped producing fruit. So, so in order to, to ensure continued fruit bearing, the vine dresser has to come along and, and carefully and artfully and skillfully shape the plant, remove whatever is drawing strength and vitality away from that. And, and, and the healthiest, most productive plants are not always the largest. They're not always even the greenest. The healthiest plants are the ones that bear the best and most fruit. So here's what God does as he looks at our lives and he comes alongside and he examines our lives. He might have to remove people. He might have to remove relationships that are unhealthy for you. He might have to remove hobbies that, that are taking you away from things that you really ought to be doing or habits or addictions or, or maybe it's a job or, or other circumstances uh, for, of your life. He might have to remove things like that from your life for his purposes. And he does that. When he does that, he doesn't do it because he's angry with you. He doesn't do it because he's ticked off or because he's jealous. He does it because he loves you. And he does it uh, so that you will become more fruitful. You never see a, a, a branch pruning another branch. The only way a branch prunes another branch is that it, it falls from up high and knocks one off on the way down. Somebody said in the first service, yes, but uh, one branch can strangle another branch. And Sometimes we want to do that, don't we? <laughs> but, but you never see a, a branch pruning another branch. It's not our job to do that. It's the heavenly father who does the work. And listen to me, your heavenly father is never closer to you and you are never closer to him than when he gets out the pruning shears and carefully and lovingly and attentively sets the stage in your life for increased growth and increased ministry, increased fruit bearing. In verse three, Jesus points to the pruning effect of his spoken word. He says to the disciples, you are already clean, which is in, in the context of dressing vines, that means that describes a, a branch that has been pruned. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. God uses his word to keep on cleansing us, to keep on pruning us in order to make us more fruitful. You think about the, the fully orbed role of a vine dresser. You know, there's other things that he has to do, other responsibilities. He, he prepares the soil, he plants, he fertilizes, he, he trains vines, he irrigates, he, he manages pests. That's, that's not just children. Now, he, he harvests fruit, he does all of that. The vine dresser is, is responsible for all of that. And it, all of that, God assumes responsibility for as it applies to you. And that's great news. Your part then is not to focus on bearing fruit, but simply to abide in Christ. And he will take responsibility for the fruit bearing. Your job is to abide in him. What does that mean to abide? Well, 
I don't know if you've ever spent a day just watching a branch. Uh, branch. I hope you haven't because that would be really, really boring. That would be like, you know, watching paint dry because branches don't do much unless the wind is blowing. You know, not much that you can see. They just sit there and, and they maintain connection. There, there is a, a volitional element to abiding in Christ. He made us intelligent creatures. It, but that volitional element means that we're going to rest in him knowing that our sins are forgiven, that he has given us the eternal life, that he provides abundantly for us. We're going to rest in him. We're going to remain in him. We're not going anywhere. We're not looking for a better deal because there isn't one. Um, you know, we, our role is to intentionally maintain that vital relational connection with Jesus to make our home in him, to set up camp, as it were, in Christ and just allow the sap to flow. It requires of us that we be in God's word. It it requires of us that we be in regular fellowship with other believers, some of whom want to strangle us. But that it means that we're in that relationship and in that environment of abiding, God does his work of fruit bearing so that abiding is the prerequisite to kingdom effectiveness. You, want to, you, you may ask yourself, how can I be productive? How can I be effective in ministry in the kingdom of God? Square one is maintaining, abiding in a relationship with Christ because apart from that vital connection, as Jesus said, you can do nothing. You can't accomplish anything that is of lasting spiritual value in your life, in the life of your family, in the lives of of others. Notice that, that in the three places where the word abide appears in this passage, which are verses 4, 5, and 7, there's a reciprocal action going on. The abiding is reciprocal. We abide in Christ, and he abides in us. In Revelation 3.20, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in to him and have fellowship with him, and he with me. He wants to come and, and take up residence in our lives. So we abide in Christ. He abides in us. We abide in his word and his words abide in us. We make our home in him. He takes up residence in us. And it's only out of that vital reciprocal invested relationship that flows the power and other enablement for ministry in the kingdom of God. So the spirit's intent in your life to answer the the question is this, that you glorify God and you prove your discipleship Um, by enabling you to bear much fruit. The Spirit does that enabling. And so John 15, 8, which I mentioned earlier, by this my Father is glorified. By this my Father gets much honor. By this my Father gets much glory. By this my Father gets much pleasure. By this my Father's fame is spread, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So to whom are we to prove that we're disciples of Jesus? Not to God. I mean, he knows, right? I mean, he knows whether we are or we're not. He knows that better than we do. Uh, We need to prove nothing to him. The ones to whom we need to prove the authenticity of our discipleship, apparently, is the watching world, the people who are looking on and saying, are you for real? Are you really for real? Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, and this is the the, the verse I refer to every Sunday as I dismiss you, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. So the watching world is looking at the community of believers and saying, do they love each other? And sometimes they see love and sometimes they see other stuff, right? But Jesus is basically saying that he has given to the watching world the authority, the right to judge of the authenticity of, the, of our faith by this one factor, this one mark. Do they love each other? Tangibly, observably, really. John 17, 20 to 21, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. I do not ask for these only, referring to uh, the apostles and the, and the kind of the larger discipleship band, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. There's some of that recipro- reciprocal language again, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our oneness is the mark to the world that Jesus is for real, and that we are his disciples. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So, so Jesus saying, by your love for one another, you will mark yourselves as my disciples. By your love for one another, your unity, you give evidence of my the, the of who I am, my identity, my true identity. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That much fruit, much fruit is one fruit, and that one fruit is the character of Jesus Christ. For those whom he foreknew, Paul wrote to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn, the greatest among many brothers. And, and so that, that conformity is, that tells us that the spirit of God, what God is trying to do in our lives is to make us like Jesus. And in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, there's this, there's this description, I think, of the character of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, one fruit, singular. It's not plural. It's not fruits of the Spirit. It's one fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And, and, and so it's not like God has a different curriculum for each of those characteristics of the fruit, but he's trying to work all of that in us at once all the time. Um, So abiding in Christ then is the means to being continually filled with the spirit. In fact, it's another way of describing the continual filling. Abiding in Christ is is really almost synonymous with the continual filling of the spirit because it, it maintains the flow of the spirit in our lives. And when you are being filled with the spirit, Fruit production will follow. Ephesians five seventeen to 21, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled. And literally, it's in the continuous imperative, or uh, yeah, continuous imperative, but be being filled with the Spirit, addressing 
one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which which I think, and I don't understand the fullness of what that means, I don't think, but I, but I think it means this, that there's something about our speech that's going to change, the way that we interact with each other verbally, and then singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There, there ought to be worship that flows out of the Spirit of God in our lives. We should be eager to worship, and, and it ought to be something that comes very natural to us, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you're no longer the grump you used to be. You're, you're developing that attitude of gratitude and then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ and that enablement to get over our selfishness, to get over our self-absorption, to get over our insistence on our own way and literally to submit to one another out of, it says, reverence for Christ. So it's the filling, the constant filling of the Spirit that is synonymous with abiding and that filling results in the fruit being produced through our lives that God intends through us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time in your word. Thank you that uh, you speak right down into our lives to the real stuff that's going on. Uh, thank you that your word is not just pie in the sky by and by, but it's, uh, it's real and, uh, and, and we can trust it and we can learn from it and grow from it and be pruned by it and be shaped into the people you want us to be. And Lord, I pray for those today who might be here who are saying, I, I, no, I have no idea what that guy just said. Um, and, and Lord, I pray that you might speak into their lives, that you might draw them into a relationship with Christ, that you would grant them that gift of faith that leads to life. And I pray it in the name of your son, Christ. Amen.